Hi, this is Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast, the podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we'll be heading down to Richmond, Virginia, where we talk to Jim Hanny about what the research teaches us about multiplying movements of disciples and churches. I went to Nigeria, my first missionary assignment in 1981. And back in those days, uh, as a student worker in Nigeria, I remember my goal was probably to plant one church in four years, you know. Uh, I remember taking a machete and clearing the grass for that church and trying to acquire land and find a pastor and, and, and you know, get, get the land and, you know, do all those kinds of things. And uh, it was rather rigorous. It was uh, a lot of structure involved. We had the, uh, I say this in quotation marks, the blessing of a local um, authority or ecclesiology that had uh, plenty of extra biblical requirements for what it meant to be a church as if it weren't hard enough to get a pastor and a seminary scholarship. I mean, all the other things that back in those days we thought we had to have to plant a church, even a single church. Uh, just so many things that were uh, either that we that we had kind of added that we thought would need to be uh, necessary to be a church. Mm-hmm. So um, we were I was able to plant a church right now. The church still exists. I know that I was able to visit it and they have about 3000 members. So that's good. Uh, and then um, after I was in Nigeria, I went to northern Ghana and I realized that, wow, I could have pretty much go into any place and plant a church. And then then it was a matter of I could do a lot of churches, but I didn't necessarily have healthy churches or people didn't necessarily, they weren't impacted by a scripture engagement or we weren't necessarily implementing church planning strategies. Back in those days, um, the term in the Lausanne movement was work among. You know, where do we have work among? It was just a compound word that we made up, but um it's almost like uh, if you were out there doing missionary kinds of work or you had a missionary station or if you were working among a people group, mm. well, whatever you did pretty much qualified as missionary work. Um, and uh, so even some of those folks were not even getting to a single church, but they were doing a lot of other things that um, I'm sure were, were good and well-intentioned. But the, the, the sad part of it was I think a lot of us who have been church planters on the field have seen this increasing gap of lostness where we were satisfied, at least I was satisfied with an occasional uh, set of baptisms. Uh, and not saying I didn't plant churches. I planted about 120 churches in 10 years uh, through theological education by extension and, and other things like that. But it was still incremental growth. One by one, and you see, you see churches succeeding, churches failing because primarily I couldn't, I couldn't keep them all going. And it sounds strange to say this today, but back then we didn't always necessarily think about multiplying or building capacity among local partners. You know, we we looked at the missionary task as if we were to engage and then uh, establish a church stay there pretty much until we retired in that area on the mission station. 
We never got to the third E, the first one being engaging or implementing a church planning strategy, the second being establishing the church, but the third E being, hey, what about enlisting? What about equipping? Uh, what about enlisting those that we have discipled and planted churches among in the Great Commission and multiplying this on out? I'm not really sure why we never got there, but a lot of them were because of the, the, the barriers we ourselves erected to seeing movements. And so uh, at some point, I was kind of born again thinking that unless, unless I change something here in what I'm doing, and also unless God responds with a movement, unless we work together and, and the Lord responds and, and he teaches me and I start learning some things from him, I'm never going to be able to close the gap on lostness. Mm. And it's that horrible, horrible gap in lostness, whatever statistic you want to use that really has driven me from the research side that 3,000 people every half hour, by my count, your count may be different, go to an eternity without Christ. That's a 9-11 event for those of us who are in the U.S. in September 2001, we witnessed the 9-11 event. That's a 9-11 every half hour. And it never stops while we sleep or while we meet or while we do interviews or while we eat. It just keeps on going. So the only way we're going to reach people groups is through movements. And the only way we're going to maintain reach people groups sustaining is through movements. So uh, we, we have to do something smarter. We have to do something better to close that horrible gap. Uh, on uh, Again, when I got to Ghana and I was in the northern part of the country where we really didn't need to buy land and where people could put up their own village church and where my people were primarily oral learners and they could never go to seminary or pastor school. Basically when I moved to an environment where there were not the, uh, the props, the extra biblical props that I had relied on for church planting, I realized, Hey, without those, we can, we can do more here. You know, I don't have to wear myself out. I can actually train people in each of these roads I'm traveling down every day and, in the, in the process, maybe save my backbone a little bit as well on those roads. Uh, and then, and then I, I did that for about 10 years. And then in 1995, uh, our local partners in Ghana, where I was serving, asked me to become the evangelism director for our Ghana Baptist Union, our Ghana Baptist Convention. And then I pretty much had the whole country. And I th- thought, well, surely now the methodology that I used in uh, the North when I was a church planter, I can, uh, I can con- continue to do that and then train faithful men around me who can implement that, that uh, I would say, catalytic engagement, catalytic implementation of church planting strategies, where we don't necessarily have to be the ones doing the preaching and the baptizing, but we can equip others who will. And then it just starts making sense after a while. Hey, this is interesting. I've been relying on more mission missionaries for my mission, you know, and things like that. And well, it's hard to get a missionary to come out here and stay here and all that. It's hard for them to learn the language. They go back home after a certain number of years. Then I found out I've got all kinds of lovely people here in the country of Ghana who love the Lord. They know their worldview. They know their language. They're never going to uh, leave and go back to America because they have a toothache somewhere or they, they have a, a sick child. And then it just starts adding up. And I began to see also 
that there are a lot of bleeders, what I call bleeders to movements, things that bleed energy away from movements. I began to observe kind of from the side because I had come from an area in the northern part of the Savannah area of northern Ghana. And then I went to the southern part where they still had the model of buying land and paying pastors and sending seminary students, people to seminaries for four years, you know, and maybe they'll come out and pastor a church and maybe they won't. I still saw how that was going much, much slower And then I started asking, does it need to go that slow where the church has already been established? So I started asking questions such as, is it really necessary that you have to be uh, ordained or a reverend father or a priest or someone at that level to baptize someone, to invite someone to the Lord's table? And uh, there's where I began to run into barriers of ecclesiology and extra-biblical measures of what it means to be a church. Obviously, we introduce these things ourselves. These are the tares that prevent the seed from growing. And we all have to evaluate, are we guilty of introducing extra biblical practices into discipleship or into church planting or even into uh, creating sending structures? And I just began to see that we were doing that. I remember going to Sierra Leone. This was back before the Civil War, back before 1991. And I remember assessing with some brothers there how many churches they wanted to plant in in the country the the very next year. And they said their goal was to plant two churches. Hmm. Two churches. Would you mind telling me what it takes before you're willing to call something a church? They said, sure. It's very, very clear. There are four things necessary for a church. You have to have a seminary-trained pastor with a Master of Divinity degree. You have to have a church parsonage. You have to have a church building. And you have to have, of course, for that building, you have to have church land. Oh, and there was a fifth thing. There were some Europeans there who promised all the pastors a sewing machine and all the pastors' wives a machine to make bricks in the hot sun. I thought that's interesting itself, you know. Pastors sew, because they can do that in the shade, and the pastor's wives have to make bricks. But anyway, before they would call it a church, here's the important part. Every church had to have that set of um, amenities before they would constitute it as a church. Obviously, then, they can only go so fast, because their, their, their church is uh, dependent upon budget and resources that are hard to come by. So they almost had, I said, well, what happens if somebody starts a church without your permission? Oh, well, we, they can do that, but it's only going to be a group. We have to come and supervise it and maybe keep the lid on it. So these are the kinds of barriers that, that we have. And, and so along the way, though, also within the worldview of people, I saw that there are opportunities. In, in West Africa, there's a proverb. If there's anything between you and power, remove it. Fruitful practitioners deal with the things that prevent the Holy Spirit from empowering them. Um, and uh, so there are there are opportunities for uh, challenging the extra biblical practices and, and, and barriers that we ourselves erect to multiplication. The next stage was in 1999, after spending time um, being a national director for evangelism and missions in a West African country. 
I came, I was invited by a man by the name of Avery Willis, who was uh, working for International Mission Board, and another one, Scott Holstey, to come and be the uh, direct associate director for global research here at the International Mission Board. And uh, there again, uh, in research, what I saw was that the research model back then, interestingly, this was before research was on the internet. You can imagine that. Our, our website, here's a shameless plug for you, peoplegroups.org, and the Joshua Project site have only been up since 2002. If you can imagine that. So uh, there were a lot of changes that happened back in 1999 that served us to multiply our research and also our awareness of peoples around the world. We made this, this global map called the evangelical status of, global status of evangelical Christianity. It shows where the unengaged, unreached people groups are, where the engaged, unreached people groups are, and where the people groups that are no longer unreached are living. So we make these maps and we show that. So one of the ways was to visualize the lostness of the world. Where are the countries and where are the peoples that, that don't have a church? Also changing the term from work among to engagement. And in giving engagement the connotation that engagement means that you're implementing a church planting strategy. In 2005, a group called Vision 5-9, Vision 5-9 came along seeking to engage all the unengaged Muslim unreached people groups of the world. And they improved on that definition by saying engagement is really four things. It's sending out pioneering teams. And I'm not saying necessarily sending out pioneering teams from the West, mm. sending out pioneering teams from local churches within their own country, cross-culturally as well. Pioneering teams working in the local language, uh, committed to long-term presence, among people they love, not just non-residential missionaries coming in and out. And then finally, commitment to seeing a CPM emerge, which means that from the very point of your entry, you try to think multiplication from the very, very beginning. You plan for groups to become churches. Um, so um, that meant abundant gospel sowing, all the universals have seen a CPM. About that time that we find that term engagement. And then that's where, of course, then we get the UUPGs, those that are not engaged. I mean, that, that was all that was happening back in 2000. And at the same time, we started saying, hey, places that we used to not be able to go to because we went there with traditional missionary visas. Or even when we had creative access after that, we begin to say, well, we can engage a people group, but we can't live in the 1040 window. Back in the 90s, when we can't go to the 1040 window, because that's where the resistant people groups are. I mean, all those, all those things that we thought back then. When we realized we could actually go into the 1040 window with creative access, and not just creative access for the sake of creative access, but to also minister and, and, and help the people uh, in, in poverty and, and the injustice of, of, of that. One of the primary ways that, that movements happen is because they don't have these extra biblical standards and structures that a lot of times we have implied uh, and imposed on people since the dawn of Christendom. That we've just continued to add these, usually with the defense that we're making the church stronger or uh, more lasting. <clears throat> but um, actually, it really uh, 
bleeds energy from movements. Donald McGavern used to say that too. Uh, you can't go and and really help with movements if you're going to go and 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 do uh, um, traditional churches that really are not indigenous to the local population. Uh, and those those kinds of churches can actually become barriers to movements. And of course, we've seen this in a lot of different areas. But but in the 1040 window, in places where the gospel had not been preached among these unengaged, unreached people groups, those structures, there was no example for those structures, nothing to draw them in. So if you if a, if a movement erupts, then the only thing you have is script, scripture or the church planter to guide you in what it means, what are the essentials of what it means to be a New Testament disciple? What are the essentials of what it means to be a New Testament church? And then, then you're free to do that. Where movements sometimes fail is where they're, where they're near to an established ecclesiology or established church or uh, traditional sort of churches. And when they, when they get going and they get energized and they begin to baptize their own people and they begin to give the Lord's Supper to their own people, they begin to plant their own churches and things like that, is then that somebody finds out about that, goes in to try to help them, and in helping them really hinders their growth and stifles the movement because they'll begin to say things like, oh, well, we'll give you scholarships to our seminary, mm-hmm. and then you can go back and teach your trainer, your, train your people. And then they go back after that and their people, I'm sorry. You should no longer be baptized, and we were doing that the wrong way. You have to be a recognized minister by somebody else before you can do the baptizing. We've seen a lot of that, too, where movements get hijacked. And a good strategic coordinator, and Bill Smith, my friend, would do this for sure, is a good strategic coordinator oftentimes wants to keep that stream of the CPM quite uh, isolated from these religious structures that can hinder the, the movement in some way by introducing, reintroducing into them these extra biblical practices and extra polity practices that can hinder movements. So they, the, there are things that bleed energy from movements is yeah, what I'm sure, saying. Sure. Um, uh, I guess the next stage would be when I, I began to, and in 2005, I became director of global research. And there I re- started realizing we're seeing far more movements than we can assess. Really? T- tell yes. us more about that. Well, right now there's about 650 movements around the world that are at least fourth generation. Fourth generation of churches. Yes, about 650. This this data comes from uh, my work with a network called 2414 Initiative. It's a fairly new initiative. Obviously, 2414 is taken from Matthew 2414. But all that we did was we uh, we started talking to some of our friends and say, would you mind sharing uh, the languages and, and locations where you have movements? And, of course, if, if you don't feel like you can do that, um, you can tell us at the country level or you can tell us at the the affinity level or the cluster level, whatever level you want to tell us. But how many movements would you say that you have that are fourth generation? And then the next level was to screen through those and look at uh, where there may be some duplications. What we found was 650 that are fourth generation believers are beyond. So along with that movement comes increased concern for, well, what is moving and what is multiplying? You know, uh, a movement is fine and multiplication of cells is fine. But you want to make sure that those cells, whether believers or churches, are healthy and not cancerous. Mm. We don't want the cancer growing. Mm. Um, 
And sometimes it may be very, very healthy. Sometimes it's not. So we we go in and we a lot we ask people when we when we hear some something about this that so and so does they have a thousand churches. Okay, well that's far more than we had in mind. Could we go in and do an assessment? But I, you know, one year the biggest year I think I had twenty three assessments, twenty three global assessments to do. Uh, we can't. My department. We can't go and do those kinds of assessments, but we wanted to look into them. So we do a lot of uh, training like we're doing here, where um, where maybe uh, you're a client and you say, hey, Jim, could IMB help us assess whether or not we have a CPM going on here, uh, where the strengths are, maybe where the barriers are that we're facing. So I've written an article in Lausanne World Pulse called Integrity and Accountability in Reporting Mission Statistics. And I think sometimes the integrity and accountability problems begin with us when we go in and we expect oral learners or people who want to please us uh, to give us a report on the extent of what uh, their work has 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 seen, and then they they give those to us, and we then report them. So a lot of times that puts me in a position here in global research to hear some fantastic reports uh, that may or may not be happening. Mm. So whenever we hear about those incongruencies and we all, you know, when we get together at meetings or we, we go to some global assembly or some global or regional meeting, we're always talking, you know, across the dinner table and we're always hearing these kinds of things is, yeah, yeah, I've heard that too. But you know, something about that just doesn't make any sense to me. I wonder if we could get together a group of guys and, and maybe train them on the internet through a Zoom call or something like that, go through the assessment tool, put together a methodology, find some dates that we could go in and interview some people. And I've been doing a lot of training like that, helping helping teams to go. And the, the real value of that, and who's that report for? That's a, that's a legitimate question here. The report is for the team. So if I come in and I lead a team to do an assessment of somebody else's work, and uh, we finish that assessment, we give that assessment to that team, and nobody else sees that assessment unless that team decides to redact it and share it. That's, that's kind of the rule here mm. is that we're really not trying to make a name or trying to shoot somebody down or, try to, you know, validate this or that, or we're not, we're not assessors. We can't see everything. We're only an external team. And so we want to give the value of that assessment to the team so that they can enhance the things that are working well for them through the stories that are told to us or, uh, Take on some of the barriers full, full on so that they can uh, maybe get past a hurdle and, and, and see a CPM. And at the end of the age, he's going to come back and he's going to say, and his, he's, he's taught, taught his disciples, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? That we also have a part in helping to understand whether or not when the Lord returns, he will find faith among the languages, people, tribes, and nations that he is called to be his own, that he died for. So we have a part in understanding what God's doing among his peoples. Without that, we can't know that we're really making disciples of every language, people, tribe, and nation. So that's a call not just to evaluate, but to appreciate, to acknowledge the great things that Christ is doing. And I can tell you this, while we have been disappointed in some numbers that were overreported that we found during assessments, We've been far more thrilled than discouraged with the exciting things that God's doing among people that we did not 
know had the level of maturity and understanding that they do. And, and could, uh, that we have four purposes in doing an assessment. We want to accurately describe the history, nature, and extent of a movement. And uh, sometimes we have a dissertation. Uh, Roy Oxnavad's dissertation of Iranians in the diaspora. Uh, somebody else's dissertation on the peoples, uh, all the Kurdish peoples, or the Bengalis, or whatever. So we ha- we has we we do a review of whatever literature is available, but we also have reports from there. Sometimes numeric reports, sometimes interviews, and so um, we also want to uh, bring in to the assessment for interviews or go out to these people. Uh, we want to get that extra piece of data that comes from from them, and that is nothing other than their story, the people we talk to. Uh, these are the human documents. These are the people bringing testimony of the acts of the of today's apostles. And so we want to interview the human documents. They're part of our review of literature, and especially people who had their stories of what Christ has done in their life. We want to hear about that. And, and then we want to judge from all of those that are available to us the extent of the movement. And so sometimes uh, it appears from the outside that movements have even failed or faltered because maybe they plateaued in the number numbers that are there. And oftentimes what we find in an assessment is, while our understanding may have plateaued, there's things that where the white fire or red hot fire of the gospel has burned beyond the horizon of our awareness. It is still burning just as fast as it ever did, but we can't see past our own horizon to know what the extent of the movement is. So we allow people to tell us that and then build time into the assessment where we can actually go to where they say there's another part of the stream or another stream of the CPM. And then we'll go there and interview as well. Or maybe we find out something entirely different and we're interviewing over here. And then the stories we're hearing are very similar to what we heard a couple of weeks ago, 500 miles away. And then maybe you find out that, well, the reason that is because that movement sent a trainer over there or the, 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 the fire somehow jumped, you know, and, and there you have it. And you see that by in the stories of the people, you see common threads or common training materials. So the first thing about an assessment is to describe the history, nature, and extent of the movement by whatever information is available. Next, to describe and evaluate the faith and practice of churches in the movement, especially taking note of what are the things that they're doing that are uh, according to the essentials of what it means to be a New Testament disciple or church, and what are the extra biblical or extra polity standards that have been introduced uh, within the uh, lives of the disciples or the, the churches. Number three, we look for effective strategies and practices that may benefit other work. So this would be the fruitful practices sort of thing, where there was no church, where there's now a church. Uh, how, how is it happening? Uh, it doesn't seem like it's even possible here. And then we hear some story. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, well, that's that's a strategy we would have never even thought about. Um, you know, using micro SD cards in phones bought in the market uh, among a population that has 90% oral learners. It doesn't make sense. But they have that kind of technology and they know how to use it. They're there taking your picture during the assessment with their cell phone. Wow. This person doesn't even know how to read. Uh, And finally, number four, to suggest interventions needed to address current issues or to avert 
future ones. So all assessments, you know, have these tears that are winding themselves around the movement, trying to stop it or drag it down. So sometimes when you do an assessment, you hear people's stories, you find out that, wow, if we could just take on one or two problems they're facing, this thing could begin to move again. So um, this is just my call out to all your audience and people who are your, your church planning practitioners, that you guys are the ones who, who are planting churches. You know the kinds of things that are working. You know the types of interventions that are needed oftentimes. When we get together, uh, we'll see different church planters in their movements along different stages of the missionary task. Some are just now entering, and they really don't know how to enter. They're just casting the seed, and they, they don't know what to do with that. Others are facing um, you know, incredible uh, stresses and tears uh, you know, that are wrapping themselves around the movement. And uh, they need the encouragement of how to how to deal with that and how to how to navigate those those sorts of things. Others are dealing with parables of, of parables of the kingdom sorts of things. The sower, the tares, the you know the treasure, the pearl, uh, the leaven. Uh, yeah. So they're they're thinking about uh, how can the king how can this be a kingdom movement, not just a church planning movement, but a kingdom movement as well with the principles of the kingdom at work, and then. How, how can we do our best, uh, like Paul did with the epistles, to um, avert future problems or, you know, even face current problems, but, but basically to keep this thing on track? And so all those things come into a, a church planting assessment. So the idea of the assessment then is to do the methodology that guarantees that you can get that information to the best of your not best of your ability without doing any harm, and then bring that report back to the team as an encouragement and as, an, so as a challenge. I think I, I, I kind of have a top 10 here of, of things that are our hmm. CPM stoppers. And uh, I share this sometimes, and let me just go through these really, really quickly. Uh, unfruitful practices really that prevent the possibility of seeing a CPM. Number one, the, the specialization in missions today, that if you are a researcher, or a mobilizer, an organizer, an administrator, a dynamic leader, or, or a resource provider, that you are exempt from making disciples of lost people. A lot of us feel that because of the role that we have, that we're somehow exempt from making disciples of lost people. Teams need people, individuals on their team, where everyone realizes that is is their God-given duty to make disciples of lost people, number one. Number two, another thing that bleeds uh, possibilities of seeing a CPM, spending too much time on things that do not make disciples of lost people. And here I'm treading on thin ice, I know, but family, organizing your video library. Uh, guys, I've seen... Uh, I've, I've stayed in houses where there were far more videos than, than, than uh, anything else. And it seemed like that was the, the priority or spending, maybe spending time on the computer. Number three, overemphasizing that you must gain cultural awareness before making disciples of lost people. Paul learned a lot about culture as he walked around Athens, but he never got very far until he quit dating. And started sharing the gospel. 
I think a lot of times we spend more time on language and cultural awareness. We just simply don't get around to sharing the gospel a lot of times. Number four, sending missionaries to make disciples of lost people and planting churches who have not done this prior to their missionary experience, sending people that don't know how to disciple or plant churches. Number five, the missionary teams are stuck on seeing little fruit. We'll see fruit one day if they remain on the field. I think there's that assumption too. Just keep just keep doing things as you've been doing. Um, and And finally, there will be a breakthrough someday. No, sorry, that's true. There may be a breakthrough from the Holy Spirit. But a lot of missionary teams are stuck, and they'll continue to be stuck until somebody goes in and and helps them uh, so that they can get through the barriers that they're facing. We have we have responsibility to help each other to navigate the barriers that we find as church planters. Number six, a lot of teams don't see CPMs because they don't know a lot of lost people, or they're witnessing to them or praying for them in the last 24 hours. Number seven, we aim too low. I often see churches where there are four four old women and one old man who's usually blind and a bunch of children. We need to be asking God for a man of peace who will bring, who will believe and bring you to community leaders. Like Barnabas, we don't only go after Saul, we're afraid of him. Even when we hear he has become a believer. So we need to uh, go after the go after the people who have influence. Number eight, one of the reasons we don't see CPMs, we have a fuzzy vision for why we're on the field to engage, multiply churches, see them join in the Great Commission. Um, so we really we really um, have a fuzzy vision of what we want to see happen. Number nine, that I have to know the worldview language and sell my father's cow before I can begin to witness the lost people. So I've already said this, but it's, I just said it in a different way. And then number 10, one of the things that can keep you from seeing a CPM is anything short of preparing your people as if the king is coming. So um, these are uh, things that prevent us, and I would encourage you also to think in your own ministry, what are the things that you're doing or but that have been introduced somehow into what you're trying to do that really is preventing the yeast from infecting the whole the whole loaf. It could be your eschatology. It could be your hermeneutic. It could be uh, uh, what your goal is. It could be that you don't think that God can bring you a CPM. That, that, so, so you don't think there's going to be any results. So what do you do when somebody says, can you share the gospel with me? Uh, I could, but I may lose my visa or who's watching me. Or, you know, we, we get afraid. We get, we get terrified because of where we are in these areas. And one of the things that I've seen in movements is an overwhelming boldness of Bengali Muslims, of Lingayats, of Bojpuri, of Maasai, of Kabil Berbers, of uh, Amharic in Ethiopia, you name it. An overwhelming boldness to say that a, 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 a lack of voice is greater persecution for me than using my voice and being persecuted because I've used it. So uh, let's be as bold as our national partners and uh, perhaps maybe we'll see something. You know, what's the, 
the rate of growth, even over the last 10 years, in the numbers of fourth-generation movements around the world? Well, movements are um, exponential in their increase uh, within themselves, and I think the uh, all the movements are also moving exponentially. Um, back in the, I don't even think we were using those terms. There were things called church planting movements, but um, not not with the same universals that we've had for the last twenty years. Um, I just uh, again, like I said, there weren't that many back then because I think that. We, we were operating under a, a different uh, paradigm of uh, incremental church planting uh, and where a lot of a lot of work really wasn't focused even on church planting. We just felt like we couldn't get into those countries. And one of the reasons we weren't seeing many movements back then was because the church had pretty much uh, matured where it was going to mature. And uh, those fields were stable and movements depend on instability. The instability, not only in in the geopolitical climate, perhaps there, but instability in the lives of people who are under under persecution, under severe um, social stresses, uh, who are hopeless. They they've never had an opportunity to find out that there's hope available to them. Just the whole idea that we would enter into a world where there's been a severe injustice, and the severe mercy uh, is that. While that's come at a horrible expense for uh, many people who've gone into those areas, is that um, there there are movements today where you would not expect movements to happen. Um, so getting back to before two thousand, I I wouldn't we we hadn't assessed any for sure. Had there been movements? Yeah, there had been movements in South Korea, there had been movements in uh, Nigeria, and in even in India, in the Philippines, in Brazil. Uh, Nigeria, I mean, wonderful partners in these places. Uh, and partly one of the reasons we're seeing movements today is because the majority world is uh, becoming involved. We used to have a saying among Southern Baptists, give us a million more and we'll plant one more. A million dollars more and we'll plant one more. That was our motto. A million more, we'll plant one more. And unfortunately today, uh, the human resources and resources are coming from the indigenous harvest uh, field, now become the harvest forest.